Welcome to this bonus edition of Back to Now, a small but perfectly formed bite-sized extra serving of pop. To complement the end-of-year review, enjoy a collection of lovely guests and their memories of Christmas hits, or should that be December hits, or even Christmas-adjacent hits, you decide. So, sit back, enjoy, as we hand over to our guest announcer, Radio 2's Johnny California. Ladies and gentlemen, ho, ho, and indeed ho, it gives me great pleasure to introduce the first back-to-now festive hits flexidisc. Tennant and Chris Lowe. They started in December 87 with a Christmas number one. Always on my mind. They're back again. Here are the Pet Shop Boys. I, I just can't possibly tell you how important in this period to me they still are I mean I'm still listening to them If my mind takes me back they were invited to do this show for ITV the Elvis it was must have been 10 years anniversary mm-hmm. and I believe initially I think it's probably Chris had wanted to do Baby Let's Play House now, <laughs> I can only imagine what that would have sounded like but if you are listening Neil and Chris could you please resurrect your version your 87 version of Baby Let's Play House would sound like because I think it would be awesome there's still time (laughs) I think we'd all like to hear it well you know it was just there's that funny story isn't it so they did it um, it got a really good reception and then they decided to record it again and put it out as a single at the end of let's face it what had been an an amazing Pet Shop Boys to, you know, it's a sin. What have I done to deserve this rent? Actually, I mean, they could not put a foot wrong. You know, they were easily my favourite band at the time. I was just gone to them. I was lost to them. Everything they did was just amazing. This came out, you know, I still think it's the best Christmas number one of all time. Uh, I still think it's the best cover version of all time. Every year at Ducky, at the, the Saturday before Christmas, we stop the night and announce our favourite Christmas number one of all time. We put this on and then we put the snow machine on and it's our favourite time of the year. All this snow, all this um, uh, washing up liquid snow goes all over the crowd. Everyone slips about and goes mad and everything like that. And then we follow that with Don't You Want Me by the Human League, which is the second best Christmas number one of all time. You've read um, Chris Heath's Literally, I presume. Oh, yes, yes. And the story about... Um, Janet Street Porter saying, you know, that's good that you should put that as a single. And they went, Janet was number one at Christmas. You know, <laughs> tells she tells them months afterwards that it's already been and gone. I mean, what can you say? I mean, later in 88, you get Domino Dancing, you get Introspective, you get annually, the Pet Shop Boys annual, the first one, which is very on brand. You've got Heart. What an amazing time for the Pet Shop Boys. <laughs> Dot by Erasure 
a banger. You would not have thought in 1989 that erasure would be a going concern in the year 2022, distant future. And yet they are. You know, a stop is a good sort of, you know, it's in the European placings. There's something about erasure that's always worked. Erasure promise, they just promise a good flamboyant good time, don't they? Yeah, um, yeah. Erasure are pretty great. Number one in Denmark yeah. and Argentina. Worth mentioning. There you go. What can I say? <laughs> What was your favourite KLF track? Oh, God, of course it was um, Justified and Ancient. It's just <laughs> got that extra level of camp added in. Um, and I love that they suckered Tammy with it into doing it. I, God knows, did she understand what she was getting herself into? And like when nope. she arrived on the set for that video, did nope. she think, Tammy, what have you done? <laughs> I don't know. But it's just an absolute... Like, sometimes when you drafted a diva or, or you know, like a legend on your record, it's just too much, but it just completely bloody worked. Um, should have been a Christmas number one. It should have been a Christmas. On that one. Christmas number one. It should have been. It's, it's when she. It's when you're watching the video and she's great. She's so into it and she's I giving it all the all the hand actions. Someone started screaming. Turn up the <laughs> you see Bill Drummond going. This is brilliant. I suspect she was heavily medicated. But I don't know. <laughs> Quite probably. What's to say about the KLF other than just completely awesome and welcome back to streaming it's finally all on there Are you ready? the house martins as well taking this isley jasper isley song and really actually turning it into something quite prolific i remember hearing the Isley jasper isley thing in the shop and thinking it was quite interesting and then I just remember thinking, yeah, I quite liked it, but it was very sweet sounding. Mm. And then obviously they turned it into a, an acapella. Yeah, it's an interesting record because it sort of gets forgotten in the House Martins thing because it's a cover and because it's yeah. a Christmas, you know. Well, we do Christmas like an acapella thing. at Christmas in this country, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> do you know? Club Legacy is really, really interesting, I think, because unlike Spandau and unlike Duran Duran, Boy George is bigger than any of Culture Club's records. I think that has something to do with the fact that Culture Club's biggest hit, Karma Comedian, it has dated very badly. It oh, feels, yeah. And that is unfortunate because I don't think that's a reflection on the quality of Culture Club's music generally. Yeah. I think Culture Club, I think Boy George is a really good songwriter. Mm. And that is proven by victims. A fantastic record. I mean, a yeah. million times better than Karma Comedian. Yeah. And also going back to the kind of linking things in the past, Victim sounds like Christmas 1983. Yeah, yeah. It, it should have been the Christmas 1983 number one. In the track notes, it was released right at the end of November. So this is again one of these punt records. Less less of a punt, obviously, being Culture Club. But the sleeve notes say almost certain number one by the time you have this LP. It wasn't a number one. Was it, it wasn't. It wasn't even a number two. And, and it was the flying pickets were number one, but number two ahead of victims was My Oh My by Slade. Oh my word. <laughs> just take a pause there for that one. 
now I would probably say Victims is my favourite Culture Club track because it has everything. It yeah. has it has a powerful vocal. I think the lyrics are amazing. The lyrics are incredible, which I never noticed at the time. Yeah, and it's very very clearly uh, a song about a gay relationship mm. that one partner within this relationship is trying to keep hidden. Yeah, you know what I mean. Right? That's what I assume it's yeah. about. But that's quite a ballsy thing to be writing a song about. Mm. in 1983 this is you know there was not a lot of of stuff like that in the charts and it's a beautiful lyric i mean it's a really emotive and beautiful uh, piece of writing it's almost enough to make you feel patriotic so here's one for our ass-kicking Prime Minister. I think he'll enjoy this. A golden oldie for a golden oldie. So Jump had been on now four by the Pointer Sisters. Okay. Um, and here we are. Now, the reason I mention it is because, and we'll make a connection with CD2, it's the Love Actually connection. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, the Girls Aloud version of the song, which was for the, the soundtrack to Love Actually, is not the version that's in the film. The no. point is this one is in the film and Hugh Grant's doing the dancing. So I don't, I don't know if Girls Aloud <laughs> expected to be in the film with Hugh Grant dancing away to their cover, but they weren't. I'd love to have been there sitting in the cinema at the premiere behind Girls Aloud. I could imagine the, the whispers along the line to say, that's not us. <laughs> That's not our version. Or, or words to those effects, shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but yeah, no, so, so Love Actually had been huge at the end of 2003. On the other CD, we've got Sugar Babes. Which is Too Lost oh. in You, which also was on um, the Love Actually soundtrack. Doing my research, this was written by Diane Warren. I, I, I think it's 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 a high watermark <laughs> yeah. in, in the Sugar Babes catalogue. And the music video, I remember they're walking through Stan's today airport for some reason, probably to do with Love Actually, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. It's a Diane Warren song and they sing it really well. And it, it sits in their catalogue at the time perfectly because they've just had Hole in the Head, which has been a big number one. Mm. Follow up with a song called In the Middle, which was decent. And so this is the ballad for this album campaign. And what a ballad. There was Christmas Eve, babe. And the drunk time. This is a really interesting record because in many ways it's somewhat unrepresentative of their output but it is their best known record by a country mile even with the darker lyrics it's a lot more musically sentimental than much of their output is it's become just such a part of culture now and i mean when you look at the the chart statistics around this song for example i mean it's charted for the last 17 years in a row every Christmas. It's just become part of that narrative that to actually be able to step back and look at it objectively is very, very hard. For me, I think one of the big keys to this record is Steve Lillywhite. I mean, he he obviously was a big, big part of that, um, of smoothing the sound, I think. Well, there's two. I mean, you're you're right. Steve Lillywhite is a huge element, but because the genesis of this song is interesting in Mm. that when you 
read or listen to stuff about the Pogues, they were phenomenally gifted musicians and they could work very fast and they could pick things up very quickly. So, you know, they, they essentially started off as a covers band. And then around the end of recording Red Roses for me, their first album, Shane McGowan sort of like sheepishly goes, oh, I've been, you know, writing some of my own stuff. And they also look at them and go like, Jesus, like they come to the studio, I think quite fully formed. This song isn't like that. This has a kind of elephantine gestation period. Yeah, they work on this for about three years in different formats. They're originally working on it with Elvis Costello. Mm. Um, the original working title that Elvis Costello has is Christmas Eve in the Drunk Tank, which they all sensibly go, no, shut up, that isn't their hit record. And it's pieced together really, really slowly and quite painfully. And I think what you realise when you go back and listen to those demos. So originally the early versions have Carter Reardon, the bassist, singing yeah. the female part, and it just, none of it works. The production, the, the arrangement is the same, but the production doesn't work. Um, it doesn't have the middle eight, and the female vocal doesn't work in it. What pushes it all into place is Steve Lillywhite's arrangement, the big kind of waltz section in the middle that they put in the refrain, and then I think most of all, Kirsty McColl's delivery. Yeah. That's what pulls it together as a song. And I think her performance, you don't realise until you hear it without her, you're like, oh, yeah, it really, really is lacking. She is just intertwined in the whole legacy of what that song is. Am I right in thinking that her vocal originally was a, was a guide vocal? Uh, I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me. I've read something with Johnny Marr where he said that her, her two real gifts were for sequencing... And I know that I've read stuff where Steve Lillywhite said about, might be in the Joshua Tree, saying about it was originally meant to run in a completely different sequence. Mm. And he'd taken the test pressing of it home. And Kirsten McCall was like, we're seeing completely the wrong order. And Johnny, but Johnny Marr said she was incredibly good at that. But he said she was an absolute demon for being able to harmonise. You know, stuff like her own stuff, like they don't know. But then also what she brought into like uh, Happy Happy Mondays, Hallelujah. Mm. You start to vocal on that. And I think with this, that she's doing that whilst working around a vocalist who is not in tune. Yeah. Harmonising to the band rather than to him, which is very, I think is very, must be very, very difficult to do. But I think she really elevated a lot of those records in a way that I don't think she fully got no. the credit for at the time. No. The No Team nearly hit proper gold with this because that single was released on the same day as this album was released so this was absolutely brand new at the time of the, the now 10 release and within three weeks it was number two yeah and to my knowledge i don't think there's been a now album up well up to this point anyway that had been released that actually nailed the christmas number one ah and they oh, nearly got so it close then. and they nearly got it <laughs> I still, it still amazes me that this didn't get Christmas number one. And I don't know if that's just hindsight. You now go, well, of course, it's a massive Christmas record. Maybe it didn't sound like that at the time. Yeah. Where do you begin with Band-Aid? I mean, I, I've had many thoughts about Band-Aid over the years. 
the, the key thing that, that I've sort of settled on is that it was kind of the end of new pop. It was kind of the coronation of like 1981 to 1984's biggest acts. We talk about a record that was very much our pop moment, our pop stars, and, you know, and everyone has a band-aid. You had your Spandau and your Duran and Boy George. These were all kind of the people who could have quite easily knocked out a Christmas single. And this kind of was their Christmas, obviously their Christmas single by default. Whether you've got a view either way of it, you know, you can't fault what it is within British pop culture. No, exactly. You can imagine the team at now, once they've had this, let's pull together a Christmas album. You can't imagine there being much argument about what track one side one was going to be. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's always going to be one of those records that's iconic in a way. Out of a lot of the Christmas classics, that's actually done much better in the streaming age now. The, the beauty of Christmas music is that it just, it's more about the music rather than the vagaries of fashion or who's actually singing it. So hopefully you've enjoyed this revisit of sorts to some of the great Christmas December hits from our guests. Don't forget the Back to Now podcast is available at all podcast providers and you can follow us as well on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Pop Rambler or Back to Now. Until the next time, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.